0: Hancock, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but you
1: rinner. Hello and welcome to a special episode of FW Presents, the anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid, and if you're a Fire and Water Patreon supporter, at a certain level, you can suggest a show, and this is in fact A suggestion from John Ross Haynes, who wanted us to do a show about DC's espionage series, Checkmate. And that's a big topic that covers two whole series and more besides, but I've taken the baton and I'm running with it. John, this one's for you. We're going to talk about Greg Rucka's Checkmate series, with a special focus on whether the roles were well-attributed to each, quote-unquote, piece on the board. And we're going to do it while playing a game of chess, Queen's Gambit, eat your heart out. So, across from me at the other end of the chessboard is our good friend and host of the Fanholes podcast, among other things, Derek William Crab. Hi, Derek.
0: Hey, what's up, Sisgoite? How's it going?
1: This is a kind of high concept show.
0: Am I Eclipso and your dark side, or am I dark side and your Eclipso?
1: I am the Phantom Stranger and your dark. <laughs> this is Legends. We're in Legends. Chess, not hero clicks. But uh, the, the principle's the same. So the idea is that we'll, we'll actually play a game of chess while we talk. So you will be hearing, if you're good at visualizing <laughs> chess moves, then you, can, <laughs> then you can sort of imagine it in your mind. But yeah, so right away, we, uh, we let a computer choose which side is which. And I have gotten the white side.
0: I'm playing black.
1: You're black, so uh, I'm intel and you're ops in this scheme. Let me just make an opening move, then. Let's see, pawn to d4.
0: Knight to c6.
1: (gasps) All right, so while while I'm pondering on this, uh, before we talk about Checkmate the series, let's talk about chess a little bit. You know, it recently took pop culture by storm through uh, the Queen's Gambit miniseries on Netflix. Became very popular. Uh, but where did it start for you? For me,
0: I feel like it started with my parents. I mean, my dad taught me how to play chess.
1: Me too. Me too.
0: I remember we had one of those like fold up travel chess sets and it was magnetic on the top. So like all the pieces, you know, would stick to the board and everything and you would unfold the board and there'd be all these nicely magnetically, you know, chess pieces would be stored inside it. This is not, professional or anything. (laughs) This is, you know, I I played chess for fun. Uh, I would often lose to most people I was playing against. But uh, for the most part, I think my keenest memories are I played chess, usually with my dad or my mom or something like that. Um, And then I think when I was in college, I played with some friends. So I had some close friends that I played chess with. That's essentially my short term history with chess. But I mean, I I enjoy the game. I feel like usually it's a, in fiction, it's a shorthand for intelligence and and perception and, and, and that whole kind of thing. You know, the idea, you're supposed to plan things out, you're supposed to be, you know, two or three moves ahead, you know, all that kind of stuff.
1: You remember what age you were when you started? Uh,
0: probably like oh you know pretty young like maybe like 10 maybe 12 i don't know i'm i'm thinking like you know around the same time i was really discovering comic books so maybe you know 87 88 something like that
1: yeah well i'm sending a knight to c3 and and for me i think it was a little older because anyway my memory is that my dad taught me like the memory is in a certain house which would make me 11 or 12 okay and i i got a a chessboard out of it uh, which I still have, a wooden chess board. I had that same one you talked about for the car, <laughs> the, the magnetic one. So I remember okay. having that little one as well. Uh, I did no longer have that one. But my memory is that my father taught me. And then I taught people because in middle school, which would only have been a couple of years later, I think a math teacher sort of encouraged us to start a chess club. And because I was one of the kids that already knew how to play, I taught a whole group of kids my age. I don't know, we had like certain periods of the library and that's what where we would do it it didn't take long for them to be able to beat me so i was a good teacher but i've never necessarily been been good at it (laughs) i've never really applied myself too much
0: yeah yeah Yeah. so knight to d4 takes pawn
1: (laughs) my pawn no my favorite
0: (laughs) Rob Kelly will be happy. Uh, Snapper car was immediately excised from this game.
1: Right away. Bishop to E3. I had to stop playing chess after an injury, a related injury. So uh, the story goes that uh, when I was in 11th and 12th grade, I was playing a lot. I was playing, I don't know, three, four games a day with this particular friend. He was the guy that, that was always at my place so he could read my comics but never bought any. That guy. Uh, and we played a lot of chess. And, uh, <laughs> and sometimes he won and sometimes I won. And it didn't matter, really. V- very, very equal. And then one day, I think it's probably in December because it was close to Christmas, because I had the wound at Christmas. I won a game. He seemed more angry than normal. And I kind of chuckled. And he said, don't laugh. And so that made me laugh. So he, uh-huh. he went after me. He okay. just got up and went after me. So, I ran off thinking this is all still a joke and we're inside my home. And I ran like to the living room uh, laughing. At that point, I had the giggles. And then in front of the rest of my family, he grabbed me, picked me up, and pile drive me into the floor. So, sp- my glasses were were flattened. I had cuts from the from the rims around my eyes. And uh, he never paid for the replacement pair. That was, like, the end of the friendship, basically. But yeah. uh, I lost my partner and then kind of my taste for it. Yeah. <laughs> it can be dangerous.
0: That's uh, Well, I'm glad you're still into the comics because the, the mooching in the comics didn't affect uh, that enjoyment. But that kind of sucks. That Like, I mean, I, I don't have any, like, stories like that. I mean, basically, it's just, I you know, I, I think, I, I don't know if I stopped for any particular reason other than kind of, what you're describing like the the partners it's like I was you know I was away at college and things like that so you know I didn't often play chess with my parents if I visited them on holiday or things like that and the person that I mainly played with at college I think we were we were pretty close like you know for I don't know like sophomore you know freshman year and stuff like that but I think we sort of drifted apart you know towards the end of that uh, 4 years so I think after that I just didn't play too much period just cuz there weren't there weren't too many other people i knew that were interested in it i think i tried to incorporate chess into like screenplays i wrote here and there and that's me going back to the whole you know oh this is establishing this character has some form of intellect you know they're not a dullard you know type thing or whatever but that's <laughs> that's basically it
1: it's sort of like that for the for the series that we're going to talk about where there is a shorthand as to the piece you're going to play and the, the whole idea of this espionage group that is planning missions and so it's all very strategic and tactical and so chess becomes their their metaphor so do you have a uh, an origin story for checkmate the series were you into the original one or just this new one
0: i was trying to figure it out like the the two things that stood out to me and i can't i can't lay my finger completely on it but w- when i looked at the original series because i did read the original series The two things that stood out to me, like, because this is the heyday of me being a a sucker for events and crossovers and things. The the things that stuck out to me were the invasion tie-ins, and I loved the Janus Directive for sure. Like I I read all the issues of it because I was pretty big into Suicide Squad and some of those related titles, Firestorm, you know, like what, Captain Adam, like some of those titles that tied into it. And I think because of that, you know, then it was like natural to pick up Checkmate because that was part of the. And I do remember the invasion covers, like especially that cover of the the knight, you know, like shooting his gun on the front of the cover. And I always thought that was a a really cool design. Like, I'm kind of sad that they never made like a a DC Universe Classics figure of the knight figure. Like, Mm. I always thought that was a really cool, it's a very sleek and cool design. So I, I did appreciate that. So I read that, and I think... This might make people chuckle because I, I don't know if this is proving or disproving a Batman phase, but I, I think I always used to know Harvey Bullock as that guy from Checkmate before <laughs> I knew him as like a, as a Batman, like, you know, supporting cast member. So like that, I, cause I, I think, I think Checkmate was my first exposure to Harvey Bullock. So like, that's kind of amusing to me because clearly he's a Batman character first and foremost. But I think when I rolled onto the scene i just i was introduced to him as as you know a member of checkmate and everything but as far as the the volume two that we're specifically talking about i mean i'm trying to remember i i think i must have lost track of it at some point but i know i was reading it real time i mean i i liked reading greg rucka's work and i don't know if this is uh, putting the cart before the horse but i mean i i thought he he usually writes things with a, a great amount of intellect and you know, it's it's very intriguing and engaging and everything. And so I, I and I guess this was coming out of Infinite Crisis. And I think, like, like Michael Bailey's frequently said, you know, like that, that that was an era where they were trying to get people to read the DC universe, like kind of read it all, basically, you know, like that was that seemed to be the approach or it seemed to be the approach to longtime fans. So, I mean, I remember I was reading tons of DC books at the time, and, and that Checkmate series was no exception. Night to F5.
1: Yeah, for me, I, I read the Janus Directive, I read those Invasion issues because of my interest in crossovers, but not the entire series. Although, like you, I think Harvey Bullock, the first time I ever met him, was as a Checkmate character as well. So we're reading comics about the same time. As for the Grucka, the, the Grucka, the Greg Rucka series... <laughs> The Grecka, the Greg Grecka series. I was out of comics at that time, and so I only read the trades based on word of mouth and uh, enjoyed them. But then maybe run out of money. I- I'm not sure why I, I stopped. It- it's not because of lack of interest. So I was happy to r- not only revisit the issues I'd read, but re- revisit for the first time the rest of yeah, the series.
0: Some of the ones you missed out on, yeah, okay.
1: yeah. So uh, and I was I wasn't disappointed, at least with the Greg Grecka issues. We'll talk about you know, those phases of the series as we get into it. But I, I like Checkmate, I, and you're right, I think Rucka is a chess player, you know. He brings enough chess lore into the issue titles and, and the, the, the maneuvering uh, that you can at least think, okay, this particular plot was kind of inspired by this chess thing. And, uh, and yeah, they, they plunge you right into it. In a way, it's like, it's a little alienating because it, it spans the entire DCU. Like, you should be reading everything to understand the nuances here. Yeah. But, but it's also quite a lot about the late 80s DC universe. You know, elements of DC uh, of DC's uh, Suicide Squad and Justice League International and, and the original Checkmate are all like in this mix of, you know, that was uh, a great time for DC Comics for me. So I, I didn't feel lost.
0: I think that's one of the attractions to the Volume 2 book. I mean, I, at least it is for me, because like I was saying, I mean, I, I frequently read the Ostrander Suicide Squad book, and I really, really loved it. So I guess if this was an attempt to recapture some of those elements, uh, it, it succeeded in sort of uh, reeling me in, you know, if I'm the the longtime, you know, fish or whatever that they're trying to capture. So.
1: Pawn to F4. So we are going to talk about the, the, the series itself. We've reread it, both of us, including, to some chagrin, the, uh, the three outsiders issues it crosses over with. I grumbled at it, but it, I mean, at that point, uh, it's Judd Winnick, it's fine. And it was all of a piece written by these two writers together. So it's not a big problem. Uh, are there storylines, characters, elements of the premise that you would like to highlight?
0: Sure. And then uh, knight to E3 takes Bishop. <laughs> the elements... That, I mean, this is an ensemble cast. Like you said, you, you have to be familiar with all kinds of DC continuity and lore to sort of keep up. This is a, I guess, what... I'm trying to remember what they call it on DCOCD like a launcher or something like, oh, yeah, like yeah. Infinite Crisis launched this series right so so you sort of need to be familiar with like the Omac project and all that other stuff but i mean when it all comes down to it if they were going to cast like a movie star in a checkmate movie and and it was you know mainly the Rucka written issues i would say that the main character is Sasha Bordeaux. And and, mm-hmm. and probably ancillary would be, you know, Michael Holt, Mr. Terrific. So like, I, I don't think you can talk about this series without highlighting those characters. I mean, even though it's an ensemble, I would say those are essentially the main characters. I mean, they're the characters you're supposed to root for, I suppose you're supposed to like. I mean, Rucka created Sasha Bordeaux. So there's a Usually I will say this sort of derisively when it comes to, say, like Brian Michael Bendis and, and Jessica Jones or even Jessica Drew Woman that that those characters are his pet characters. And if he was not on the book, they wouldn't be so heavily focused on. And there's an element to Sasha Bordeaux that that's very true of with Greg Rucka. But like, I, I feel like she escapes my derision. I don't think of her as a pet character, but I think it's Greg Rucka's baby. You know what I mean? Like, like he put a lot of love and care into the character. She started out as kind of a, I guess you'd call her a Batman supporting character. She was Bruce Wayne's bodyguard, and then in Infinite Crisis, she gets this OMAC upgrade, and that's where she gets sort of leveled up into being, you know, one of the, I guess, meta human members of this iteration of Checkmate, you know? And, and I almost feel like, I mean, some, some of it kind of got lost somewhere along the way, and you start to question, like, I, I feel like you're supposed to, right? But you have these moments where you're like, well, what's the difference between Sasha Bordeaux and, say, Amanda Waller? Like, she's the black queen, and Amanda Waller's the white queen. But in terms of, like, their objectives, their morality, like, who they are, who they want to be, you know, like, that kind of thing, it's one of those things where you, I mean, I, I don't think you can talk about this series without... Discussing Sasha, and you know, unfortunately, I think like once once Ruka leaves the title, it's kind of funny to me because it's like she kind of vanishes, you know. And it's like, well, it's too bad that because it seemed like there were people that had certain care for her afterwards, but for the most part, I mean, it seems like if rucka is not there to steer the ship, that that character loses some of her oomph. And and I I feel like she was supposed to be, I guess, I don't know, like the the seven of nine to. Uh, to any person's Janeway, whether it's, you know, Alan Scott or, or Michael Holt or whoever, you know, like she should be offering these counter suggestions and implementing certain things. But it's not always to the preference of of the people that she works with. But they they all seem to recognize that she has a unique way of getting things done and she does get them done so you know there's plenty of characters to talk about that i really love in this series but i I feel like if there's anybody that you need to talk about it's it's sasha
1: pawn to h4 in a team like this where there's going to be characters from all over some characters Are pre-existing. And she was pre-existing, sure, but you need to fixate on certain characters whose story this actually is, in many ways. I think the characters that are kind of created for this story, for this title, or are, you know, meant to advance their story, she's definitely among these. I think uh, the new Mademoiselle Marie, as one of the knights, is also a very... Very much of this series, uh, and several others. Whereas you know, you could read Mister Terrific in JSA or uh, in other places as well. So it's not. Yeah. Or Fire has has had a long career. So uh, yeah, it's definitely about her. I like the Seven of Nine comparison because she also has implants. It's. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking of it more in terms of a morality, but but you're absolutely right. <laughs> like the the Borg and the Omac kind of uh, implants. That there's there's something there where you could. Definitely compare those two characters. Pawn 2... E6, You know, you mentioned Fire I'm, I'm just going to take the opportunity Like, she, she has had a long career And I, I think, you know, th- this is one of those Unfortunate, sad factors of this era of DC Comics But if you're a fan of the JLI You know, if you're a fan of the, the blah-ha-ha ha, Like, mm-hmm. this is kind of like their, their dark, depressing 20s As I like to call my own They went through, like, all this kind of turmoil and hardship And I think, at least when I was reading Reading this for the first run. And I, I found myself drawn to her as well, you know, rereading it. But it was one of those things where it's a familiar character, but you're kind of rooting for them to escape that hardship you know like because you you have the previous care from another series and i don't i don't know if that comes across if you come to this fresh you know what i mean like i brought my baggage with me and i kind of was like oh i love fire like she's part of one of my favorite incarnations of the justice league and so so i i was kind of like hey, I want to see her be happy, right? Obviously, it's a Greg Rucka espionage thriller that deals with, you know, metahuman terrorism and disaster and all that stuff. So that's not always forthcoming, you know, but it's one of those things where I I felt like I I was rooting for that character. And, you know, I wanted to see her be happy, and you you are rewarded if you if you stick with the series. There are moments where characters are reunited with one another, and there's there's little glimpses of of happiness amid all the sort of uh, sturm und drang, as it were.
1: You know. <laughs> Queen to see one. This is what's tough about the series is that some characters are in there and then leave, uh, and another ones are brought on, and it's a large cast. It's a very large cast, so. Uh, Catering to each one, not equally, but enough, satisfyingly, can be something of a struggle. And I think it's all pretty good on that front until the Bruce Jones issues. You know, basically after issue 25... There's a change, a changing of the garden. I don't think Bruce Jones, just to mention that part of it so we can dismiss it. Uh, but the new characters that come in just never really pay off. And we'll see when we talk about, you know, each piece.
0: It's weird because I, I, I'm i going to use this as an opportunity, too, for some of my thoughts that you just sort of, uh, I guess, triggered or whatever. Mm. But like Rucka, I feel like, and, and this could be a detriment and this could be a... Uh, something that I'm using is praise, so take it whatever way you want to. But Rucca was ahead of his time, or at least we're encroaching on an era of comic books where we've gotten past, to the disappointment of many, the ongoing soap opera subplot storytelling that comics had. You know, it's not like you can easily trade paperback Batman comics from the 70s and 80s. But these were written and designed to be easily collected. And I think Rucka had a a cast of characters that was very, I guess, you know, forward-minded and also, like, the, the way the stories were structured, obviously, you know, this is the vernacular we use as fans, but, I mean, all these issues were written for the trade. And when you got to Bruce Jones, it was the same. It was written for the trade. But what's, what's horribly disconcerting about getting to that part of the run is his pet character, or his baby, is Chimera. So basically, the character that you've been treated with the utmost care and and following this whole time, you know, essentially Sasha Bordeaux, right? She's relegated to maybe like a panel or two of, of screen time, and you're following this completely other character, which is fine if you like Bruce Jones's run on, I don't know, The Incredible Hulk, like, you might think that that last six issues of Checkmate is, is really great or something, you know what I mean? Like, if you can apply that sensibility to it, but if you've been following the last 25 issues, and you're more interested in the dynamics between Amanda Waller in The Suicide Squad versus Michael Holt and... Uh, Sasha Bordeaux and you know the the different dynamics of that chessboard. You know, you're you're kind of going to be like, well, where's my intrigue? You know, there's there's not there's not a whole lot of intrigue. You know what I mean? It's it's more like it went from being the Queen's Gambit or you know the manga Death Note to Universal Soldier or something. You know, like where it's like yeah. I don't know the tone like completely shifts. Yeah, yeah
1: I mean, there, no surprise it's a monster story, but also. That character, Chimera, is really outside the hierarchy of Checkmate, and he's fighting these kaiju monsters, and, and then the Global Guardians show up. It just I understand they're deputized you know, by Checkmate, but it's like Checkmate is just in the background suddenly, and most of the characters that we've been following are either absent, or they get a page here and there to fill us in on the plot, but they're not truly active. So I would dare say that the last six issues are not a Checkmate story. They're a mm. pet monster story that Jones wanted to tell. It just so happens that he got assigned Checkmate and he could do it there.
0: I don't think I followed the book. I want to say I think this was the first time I ever read those Bruce Jones yeah. issues. Like, I don't, I don't think I bought those off the stands. Like, I don't remember reading them. And it gave me, like, a weird – I mean, just, just as something positive to say about those issues, it gave me a weird, unique – snapshot of the global guardians of that particular era because I was kind of like, oh, hey, wait, this isn't the same, you know, Crimson Fox, but it but it is a Crimson Fox. And then there were I, I don't know. It, it seemed funny to me because, you know, and this this may sound derisive. So apologies if you're a fan of either of these groups. But it's like it's like they took the global guardians and then the um, what is it? The new guardians or whatever. And they'd like they like smushed them together. And I'm like, wow, two yucky tastes that don't (laughs) go... Great together, like I don't. I was just like, yeah, no, it, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that that's gonna fix anything or get any any new fans. I mean, I mean, eventually, like a lot of these poor guys all get slaughtered anyway because nobody cared about them. Yeah. But, but I I just thought it was funny because I was like, wait, you're merging like two really like because I was like, wait, gloss is in this and what and I, yeah, so I was like, okay.
1: Yeah. No, I I don't I don't think it's necessarily on model either. But the reason I I want to bring it up is because it it feels like. Like, the series is unfinished. First of all, there's, like, characters that are added to the cast late in the game, and then Rucka leaves the book. So they never really do anything. Like, their their purpose is, is un- unknown. But more than that, I think that once Bruce Jones comes in, it doesn't feel like a Checkmate story, and then Checkmate ends. And I know Checkmate is still around, you know, from that point on. It's in yeah. the background. yeah. It made me feel, and this is this is a compliment. Greg Rucca made me feel like Checkmate was so rooted and so intertwined with the DC universe that it not having its own book told in this style and with these stakes feels like th- there's like a gaping hole in the DCU.
0: It does feel that way. I have some weird thoughts about that. Like it seemed like Rucca had two really big stories he wanted to tackle. Yes. The first story was the the Kali Yuga Cult of Cobra, you know, running story where they open with that, they get the undercover agent into Cobra, and then it kind of gets forgotten about slash abandoned because of the way this is written for the trade, and they move on to some other trade stories and everything. And eventually, like, way late in Rucka's run towards the end, like we're saying, it ended with issue 25, they do the kind of, okay, now it's time for the big showdown. You know, it's going to be Checkmate versus the Cult of Cobra, and they bring in, you know, the Justice League and the JSA, and Superman's there, and it's this, you know, it's this huge kind of deal and everything. And that was one of the main, I think, stories that, Rucka had in him to tell with Checkmate. The other one, which I think I was actually more intrigued by, is, you know, because it had elements of the Suicide Squad in it, was this kind of underplay between the different political factions within Checkmate. And, you know, Amanda Waller is there, so she's... They have rules, they have, you know, the Rule of Two, where, you know, it's supposed to circumvent, you know, the way Maxwell Lord took over Checkmate, and, you know, there's, there's two metahumans, and there's two... I guess standard humans or whatever, you know, non-powered humans, and it's supposed to be a, a system of checks and balances. But they're they're constantly finding ways to circumvent the rules, or bend the rules, or work around the rules. And that's that that's all very, I guess, chess-like in a way, right? Like, I mean, I guess you can't bend rules in chess, but like there's there's tricks if you know how to how to use them, right? Queen to h4 takes pawn. And your king is in check.
1: Great. Uh, I'm really playing very badly. (laughs) And so are you because your knight has been on my queen for a couple turns. And it would have been an easy uh, get. But also, yeah. this is the first time I realized that the piece I think is the queen is actually the king and vice versa.
0: <laughs> it does. Th- it's not just you. Because I think when I first looked at this program, I was like, I thought that was the king. And this is the same thing. So
1: There's two chess games being played in the series. And that's what I think is interesting. Because there's the they're playing against Cobra. You know that there is there that chess game, which is a lot of moves and counter moves, and then there is always, because of Amanda Waller, there is that inner chess game, which actually makes mm. more thematic sense because it's black versus white. Yeah. And so within the organization, they're playing against one another.
0: Is it though? Like that? That is one of those things where where it's kind of funny because white versus white. You yeah. know, Alan Scott and Michael Holt you know, Green Lantern and Mr. Terrific, they're on the white part of the board. So it's like it'd be this weird thing where like you're I mean, maybe you not realizing the king and the queen are the same piece like that. That's almost like what happens in this book, because it's like the queen's off doing her own thing and purposely wants the king to get ousted. So there can be a new king brought in that's more malleable to her political aspirations and motivations.
1: I mean she goes up against Sasha, so there is a white on black, but originally it's white on white. Amanda is playing against Alan Scott and she's playing against the whole organization really. Yeah. She's yeah. a big cheater. This of course is like she's running Task Force X on the side. They're doing missions. Mm-hmm. She's compromised fire. I mean, this is the the sort of the intrigue here. Is often more interesting than the plot versus cobra
0: and and if you're if you're familiar with those characters i mean there there's a lot of payoff with that as well right because so she gets to bring back you know rick flag and bronze tiger and deadshot so if you're a fan of the suicide squad like you get to relive some of that through all those characters and then you've got um
1: Pontage g3 a lot of the
0: different espionage i guess top dogs in the field coming into this so like you know king faraday is the white queen's bishop you know and then you know there's there's the interplay between like sarge Steele and sasha bordeaux like so if you're familiar with a lot of those characters whether they're you know imported from charlton or you know long time dc super spies they do get incorporated into this chessboard so that i mean that that's kind of fun too
1: and i like the, the smaller stories as well you know it's like whenever they do like a little uh like the whole bit with the castellan where they have the master jailer and they show how they, he protects their castle from invasion and then it turns out that that looks like a little spotlight but it's also attached to the bigger story of amanda waller Like, she's using that opportunity to to get into the mainframe. And and then the one with Mademoiselle Marie as well, there's a spotlight with that character and showing her legacy that goes back to the Renaissance. I felt like... uh,
0: Queen to H1 takes Rook.
1: (laughs) As soon as I moved the pawn, I realized, well, no wait. the Rook could have just eaten the Queen right there. We're abominable players. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know what it is, though? I feel like chess, to me, is very tactile. And seeing the board in 3D in front of me, like I should have set up a, a wooden board mm. because I feel like the top view on a computer is just not the same. It is not an excuse for my poor play. But <laughs> that said, while I'm trying to untangle this mess, doing basically, I wanted to run. I'm not, I wanted to play aggressively, but I'm playing defensively. So uh, knight to F3. Yeah, so I, I think this is a good series with a lot of Like, long-running storylines, shorter storylines, and it all pays off in the end, the end being issue 25. But do each of these pieces, and you've already gotten into it, with with Waller and Sasha specifically, as to what, what their role is on the board, if we imagine a board...
0: A pawn to H5.
1: Sneaky. If we look at that organization, Checkmate, is it thematically consistent with the chessboard and does Rucka actually use the characters in that way, in the proper way? So in the comic, we should say that white is intel. It's intelligence. Although it feels, you know, it's, all, it's also about diplomacy and politics. Because they seem to be the faces of the organization to the UN. And then the black side is ops. And never the yeah. twain should meet. Although sometimes that's a little, you know, vague as to, you know, can you send a white knight on an ops mission?
0: Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, they, they sort of do, right? They do. I mean, like, cause, you know, Vertigo often is going on all the ops missions. So there's not, I mean, that, that, that's what I thought was interesting. Cause it's, it's, it's playing with the idea of, you know, wet works of, of black ops, right? And I guess you'd make the normal connection, right? That the black pieces of checkmate, you know, would do all the wet work, but it's not necessarily true, but it is, it, it, it does give you that veneer of, I don't know, uh, equivalence or something, like that, that That there is a Black Ops portion of Checkmate, but it's not necessarily going to be, I guess, piece for piece.
1: Queen to uh, E3 takes Knight. Yeah, <laughs> he's been in my way for a while. The end. And, and the rule of two that you alluded to earlier, you know, that has to be whatever position is on one side, then... The other position on the other side should be human. There should be a balance. Well, so if it's Count Vertigo on one side, then a knight must be human on the other side so that doesn't disrupt the balance because they're involved in metahuman affairs and they don't want it to be a meta-human only club is essentially it. And of course, we've got characters kind of cheating that. But the mirror of it, I think there is a thematic underpinning to that, the mirror, because we're playing it now. And what's odd about a chessboard is that Our king and queen are mirrors. You know, they're not set up the same way if you're black or if you're white, from your perspective. They are a mirror of the other side. So sometimes your king is on the right side, sometimes your king is on the left side, depending on which color you're playing. And this is actually a a colonial corruption. It's a European innovation because the the original Indian game didn't have that mirror effect. It was... uh, And and I mean, there was a lot of differences. Like, you couldn't do that two-step opening move for a pawn. Most pieces could only move one or two. Couldn't go all the way to the end of the board. You know, they had to move in in smaller increments. But the Europeans felt this was too slow. So all the innovations, what we know as Western chess, what we're playing now, is a faster variant.
0: Knight to E7.
1: So the mirror idea, I think, comes from there, where you're you're staring down the analogous piece on the other side. So good on Rukka on this. And white moves first. I mean, Amanda Waller is certainly an instigator of a lot of shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that that definitely is true. It, it's funny, though, in some ways, like, I guess Alan Scott moved first in a lot of things to where he... I don't know, it's weird. Like, in some cases, I feel like he's like the king where he's very reserved and can only move, you know, a single step in any direction. But then in other cases, like, I mean, he he does make a pretty bold move, but then that gets like him... Knocked out of the book. Yeah. I guess for having said all that, I mean, Mr. Terrific is not hobbled or, you know, incapacitated or anything. I mean, for everything that Amanda Waller sets into play, I, I think the way it's written, you think they're on the defensive, but I think part of his stratagem is to make them think he's on the defensive, when in reality, he kind of sees the board, right? Because he's one of the smartest guys in the DC universe, so I, I think I think he kind of knows two or three moves ahead, whereas maybe they're, they're only thinking of the next move ahead.
1: Pawn to A3, one of the things that is true, I guess, in the intelligence world, I would imagine, is intelligence first, ops second. You know, you first you gather the intelligence, and based on your intelligence, you plan the op and you execute the op. So the black and white idea here works in that sense.
0: Pawn to G5.
1: I will rock. Will it let me rock? Okay, there we go. Uh, or castled. <laughs> uh, I, castled is <laughs> in English, right? In French, it's rock. Castle, In yeah. French, it's rock.
0: You rock and you rock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've rucked. And, uh, okay, so, and black, I, I think black, and uh, you've proven it, since you don't have the initiative... It's better to play Black aggressively because you're one step behind, except possibly my case where I've been like three steps behind the whole time, but but, but Black uh, must be more aggressive and that, that speaks to ops and speaks to Sasha and her group, uh, I think are more generally aggressive characters. Pawn
0: 2, F4 takes your pawn.
1: And puts my queen in danger and am I going to move that? Yeah, queen takes pawn on F4. So if we look at kings, you've been mentioning, uh, you know, Alan Scott and Mister Terrific takes over from him, goes from bishop to king uh, on the white side. The black king uh, remains Talib Ben Khalid all the way through. So he's yeah. never he's never checkmated. So the king, what can we say about the king on the chessboard? Kind of a stay-at-home
0: knight to G six.
1: You know, doesn't move much.
0: See, I was wondering. I mean, I know there's people that have you know opinions on superheroes should kill, superheroes shouldn't kill. This is more of a espionage, black ops thing. There's there's gray areas where there there's certain you know sanctions that take place and everything. But Alan Scott reminded me of the King in that way that it was. He just was beholden to that code so much that it. It did kind of cripple his ability to be an effective white king, I thought. Whereas I feel like Michael, you know, skated the line. Like I I think that's the trick to those characters. It's like you like the characters, you know. It's like Cyclops and Utopia kind of walking the tightrope and playing all the sides, you know, and that kind of thing. Like that's fine. It's I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the, the minute. That problems occur is when the person falls off the tightrope. And the problem was Alan Scott, for all his morals and all his super powerful ability with the Starheart like he was immediately knocked off the board you know like he immediately fell off the tightrope because that's not the type of person he is he can't he can't walk that line like like Sasha could or he can't walk that line like apparently i mean if if you look at it like Khalid could right like because Khalid's been you know he he stays the entire run like he he uh, for the most part i mean i i think like i i know you said there's no end to the series but that it was still incorporated if if i recall correctly Fire goes back for his help in Generations Lost, that weekly series that Winnick wrote. So, like, he continues to be the Black King long after the series is over. So, that I mean, that that would speak to his ability to to sort of walk that fine line and kind of play politics, not be
1: played by them. Queen to H4, it's the idea that that this is a character that must be put in check. That must be checkmated, you know? And Alan Scott gets checkmated. The other two don't, at least not within the the life of the series.
0: Knight to H4 takes queen.
1: (laughs) And pawn takes knight. Like, he was the diplomat, Alan Scott, and so he did his move, he actually got the result he wanted, but he had to step off.
0: Pawn to B5.
1: Michael Holt is the character that most represents intel, you know, like he's the purest form of the side that he's representing, and because of his fair play philosophy, he knows this, where the lines are to stay inside the lines, and he's, he's really the opposite of of Waller. Like, both of, of the kings, Waller tries to put them in check when they resolve that storyline. She's going after them. You know, she's got dirt on Mr. Terrific and Sasha uh, being lovers. She's got what she thinks is dirt on Khalid, as if uh, he was uh, had been switched. He, like, played switcheroo with the Martian Manhunter. Right. right. But that's all a trap to yeah. get her off the board. So, like, that's a very fun chess game that's going on there
0: yeah and i i think that's that i guess that's part of what i was getting at like that's i think the story that rucka had the most fun writing and and that we as readers probably had the most fun reading Mm -hmm. but i think i think once it gets to the point where the trap has been snared and then you know they basically once negative woman replaces amanda waller like i mean even though rucka gets to finish his arc on the cult of cobra like i i think there's a A lot more of the tension is eliminated and it becomes more about a a kind of all hands on deck, you know, smash the bad guys off as opposed to the the intrigue we've been used to. We
1: lose something when we lose Waller. I did a knight to B5 takes pawn. (laughs) So let's talk about those queens.
0: Bishop to B7.
1: You're so aggressive, uh, and that's what I was going to say about the queen. I think the queen, because she has such a long range and a freedom of movement, uh, she is very powerful. She's very maneuverable. She's aggressive, and she gets her hands dirty because when you think of a queen, you think, well, she's sitting on the throne next to the king, and she shouldn't have any more movement than the king does in a royal thing. You know, she should be just as protected. But in reality, she goes, you know, behind the lines and and attacks there, which I think is a great. Description of both Amanda Waller and Sasha Bordeaux. People are crossing mm. the line. Who are yeah. uh, behind enemy lines, doing things, getting their hands dirty.
0: Well, that, that's kind of what I think is interesting because I, I think, in some ways, I guess I guess you have to make up your own mind. But I, I, I think there there is some decidable mind making up that is done for you you know like i mean obviously like maybe i'm talking out of turn but i mean you're you're probably supposed to root for sasha and holt and those guys but then but but think about it this way like like say it's like a sports team right and my sports team is the the suicide squad maybe i'm sitting here like rooting for rick flag even though like yeah i know i'm not supposed to right quote unquote but like there's a fun aspect to that at the same time i think there's you know, I'm kind of having fun with that aspect of it. But but there also to me is a serious aspect where you say both Sasha and Waller do things, you know, they play outside of the lines, they do things off the board, they can go anywhere on the board type thing. And you you do kind of question like, well, ultimately, like, what's the difference, right? I mean, they, they even play with that up until the very end, you know, when they they introduce the rooks, and they're trying to take out the um i don't know the little v lizard babies from the cult of cobra or whatever right and and there there is that <laughs> that strong inference right like where they're like you know batman sitting there all judgy mcjudgy going like what are you doing like what are you doing to the babies you know and all that kind of stuff and i mean you're you're supposed to think she's gonna have them all neutralized you know and that's that's not where it ends because it's like this little Happy sign off where it's like, this is my last issue, like everybody's happy and it could have easily gone in the other direction. And they don't, you know, there are other scenarios where, you know, a bunch of Sasha's knights get killed, you know, like there's there's a lot of hard decisions she ends up making to prioritize the success of the mission over people human life like whatever right and in some ways that's exactly what Waller does right like she's prioritizing her mission you might not agree with what her end result is but but she's doing the exact same thing
1: sure and i think that's a an interesting ending where the the little visitor babies uh night to c7 takes pawn And you are in check.
0: And I will move king to E7.
1: The bit with the the visitor babies is a great... Sure, she seems to be more bloodthirsty than this in other stories, but this is playing the long game. This is a, what if we turn, instead of creating martyrs or keeping Cobra incensed or getting to that next plan, they're going to program these babies, basically raise them so that they do not become world enders, not become cultists.
0: Nice, happy, well-adjusted lizard babies yes, or whatever. whatever.
1: that means, you know, in the future. I can't wait for uh, DC Comics and... Uh,
0: <laughs> when, when's, when's the, the next uh, Jeff Johns going to come back to that, and there's going to be this mega crossover about the lizard babies and everything. Yeah,
1: well, they're lizard adults by that point. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cobra's trying to get them back. So <laughs> I don't know. But it is playing the long game, which is a lot of what chess is like. So not the easy solution, but the the more intricate solution. Uh, so I like what she did there. The, I mean, the other white queen that we get after Waller's out is uh, Valentina Vostok, negative woman, the former negative woman. Uh, she never gets to show her stuff. I guess we get a Russian in the role. Yeah. But uh, I, I really don't have anything to say about it because... They just fill the position and it doesn't really create story potential.
0: I guess the only thing I have to say about it, because then I put on my action figure collector Mm -hmm. hat where I was like disappointed that the the Rocket Red figure that we got was this version of Rocket Red, whereas I would have been happier with like either the the Englehart like Joe Staten design armor or the you know apocalyptic armor you know yeah. from from justice League. so
1: you mean her knight yeah the knight that she brings yeah her yeah. Over,
0: yeah. Her, her, her knight that that version of, of rocket red is the one they ended up ma- making an action figure out of and i was just like oh that yeah. i mean i'm you know it's like it's cool rocket red but if if i had my preference right i would have i would have gone for another thing so that that's what i thought of when it finally came up to that portion in the run because i was like oh yeah I, I remember this guy and that's you know that's who they pointed to they're like look this figure's comic accurate like like here's the thing, and you know, of course, when people hear Rocket Red, like that wasn't what anyone had in mind. No, you know what I mean, like,
1: so. no, that's Dimitri, You know, yeah. Knight to a eight takes Rook. <laughs> the bishops are uh, here. They they're, they're set to have to be advisors to their king or queen. Yes, on the board, bishops do sit next to a, a king or a queen, just like in uh, in English royalty the bishops would be advisors to the king and queen because of the whole anglican element
0: bishop to a8 takes knight
1: what i would say is that they have on the board oblique you just proved it <laughs> oblique maneuvering it's not a, a direct line of sight they sort of get you from the side you know from from where you weren't yeah. expecting and that's a little bit what I did while I was thinking of were the bishops that we saw really in line with that. So the white king's bishop originally was Mr. Terrific, obviously a great advisor. When Mr. Terrific became king, he took on the thinker as the bishop, which another great advisor. Doesn't have a physical form, so I would say, yes, oblique. He can, you know, pop up from anywhere yeah. kind of thing. The black king's bishop, meanwhile, was Shen Li who didn't last long. I think he was maybe oblique because he was openly spying for China. The same could be said of uh, August General in Iron. Although I do question why such a powerful meta was just a simple advisor in the series. Or was this an oblique attack forcing the white side to use a human because they put, like you would put a, a meta human piece where you didn't want a meta-human on the other side. I don't know. Right. I don't know if that's the yeah,
0: thing. No, no, no. That, that would seem to make... I mean, if you were if you were trying to work out logically why that was done, that would seem to make the most sense. You know, it's funny, too, because for me, like th- this applies more to, I guess, the JSA members than anybody, but I, I think it applies to the August General and Iron. It's like they're part of significant superhero teams right like like it's like i could understand like king faraday would makes a good bishop because like yes he's got american interests but america wants him there to be i guess as you're saying oblique right but like i'm i don't know like sometimes i'm kind of like why it's like wolverine syndrome or something you just have to like because comics and because wolverine can be in like you know, 50 billion titles all in the same month and not be completely exhausted. And I kind of had that feeling about, it's not something I ever felt like they really addressed. Like, how does being a member of the JSA impact Mr. Terrific or Green Lantern's JSA responsibilities? How does being a member of, what is it, the Great Seven be, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, impact the August General's responsibilities? You know, like, whereas like some of these characters, because it's, an ensemble piece, you know, some of the characters don't have that continuity baggage or hang up, you know, like you're, you're free to manipulate them in story. And furthermore, like in this analogy, like on the chessboard as best fits the compatible piece. Whereas sometimes I think, you know, you're like, do those, like, I guess this is the question you're asking. Like, do those characters really work as that piece given? And and I'm just throwing in the, the added, problem, you know, that they also have, I don't know, additional, you know, they're they're off playing Chinese checkers somewhere else while they're doing. It. You know what I mean? Like like that there's yeah. there's other things that that concern them rather than this particular game.
1: Knight to E5. I think that sometimes, I mean there there's a lot of espionage. I mean, we didn't talk about that chess game that's being played between the countries because they want a balance within checkmate and they want some influence inside checkmate. And some of these countries are not you know, are not allies normally. So that's why, that explains King Faraday. I mean, King Faraday and Amanda Waller are all angles. So they're all very bishopy, regardless. And then, you know, later they add the the Bad Samaritan become, is bishop for um, Vostok. Again, a very knowledgeable character. I mean, used to be a, a broker for supervillains.
0: Bishop to H6, uh, your king is in check.
1: And the Black Queen has uh, Jessica Midnight, who... Moves obliquely in that she's actually a meta because of her magical curse, but she doesn't use her powers, so she feels justified, and that's never resolved, is it? No,
0: not really. Yeah, because
1: she says, she, she promises fire that she will talk to the queen and tell her about it, confess, and then she never does, at least not on screen, on panel.
0: As far as I know, that doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, there's there's a couple series where you can follow, like, sort of what happens to some of these characters. But I don't think anything else happens as far as that goes.
1: Let's talk about knights, since they're kind of the... I mean, the knight is obviously the hero. You talked about Rocket Red. And Rocket Red wears armor, you know, he's a perfect knight yeah, in that sense, yeah. like, thematically.
0: Well, the, the 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 knight's kind of like the, the Volume 1 checkmate. I think that's a carryover, yeah. really. They're, they're the field agents. I mean, they're the people you send out to, to get stuff done, basically. Like, they're on the mission, you know? They're working... Usually, I mean like especially with something as dynamic as Amanda Waller's plans, like Count Vertigo is a knight at the behest of his queen's
1: king to be one. So they're they're very very loyal and that's, that's like basically their their main thing. They're there to protect and carry out the orders of their king or queen. And uh, of course there's the image of on the board, this is the piece that can jump over other pieces. Uh, so it can get itself into harm's way. It can, it can attack from, uh, from on high. A few of these are actually flyers. Fire can fly. Count Vertigo can fly. So that's all part of that idea. You don't see them coming, but... Um,
0: Queen to H4 takes pawn. <laughs> and, and the knights are, not only are they loyal, but I mean, they explicitly state throughout the course of the series that their main raison d'etre is to protect their king. Right. Like, I mean, that that's frequently, you know, Khalid will go off somewhere and fire. I'll be like, no, I got to come with you. You know, I got to I got to shoot all the bad guys that come after you or make an attempt on your life or whatever. So it's like there's a certain aspect where they're the bodyguard. And I'm kind of like, I don't know that that necessarily is a one for one translation of what the knight does on the chessboard. But I mean, as far as like a field agent and someone who, you know, it's like field agent slash bodyguard, you know, slash like you know i don't know secret service for these guys
1: well i think bodyguard works on the board because the the knight is well suited to protecting positions because you're you can be behind a line of pawns and still protect parts of the board that other pieces wouldn't have access to because there's not a direct line of sight so i think that works you know you know up to a point i mean it's more likely that in medieval times what the knight was and uh, and we've got like Mademoiselle Marie in, in this is one of the human knights, pawn to E3. And she has a backstory that takes her back to a time when there was an, erit- not her, but I mean, the her legacy, the other Mademoiselle Maries have been protecting aristocrats. They, they've been assigned to kings and queens in the past. Like she was perfect for this.
0: Bishop to E3 takes pawn. Bishop to
1: B5. There's also, for her, there's the, um, the, the French resistance that is also part of the past of this lineage. You know, could it be more on point to be behind the lines, which the, the knight can jump to, than to be in the, the French resistance element where you're in, you know, in, in Nazi occupied France? So I think a lot of them have, you know, some bearing to the, the, the position of knight, the position that's on the board. I think for the most part, they do pretty well. The other one is uh, Thomas Jager, who is the son of the Judo Master.
0: Uh, Rook to B eight. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. But I thought that that arc was really cool with him because you know they again, this being a quote unquote launcher, right? It calls back to Bane breaking Judo Master's back in Infinite Crisis, and they they play with that whole thing of the son wanting to avenge his his father. You know, defeat Bane, and you know potentially you know he's tempted to you know, kill Bane outright. And I mean, I, I I thought that was a really, to me like that, that was something that I could get into on a real personal level, you know, that he, he had those conflicting, you know, to duty to, to checkmate, you know, duty to the memory of his father, seeing it, how frustrated he gets after fire ends up sort of, I don't want to say botch, but ends up serving Amanda Waller's needs rather than checkmates needs.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly, because he is this is an example of a knight who is sent he's on the white side. So he's intelligence, and when he's sent into that situation, he gets the information and gets out. Even though he's part of an ops, I think he's still doing the intelligence agent. Whereas if he killed Bane, then he would have been ops side. I I, I think he's like he played it well. I mean he's assigned to Michael Holt, so I think he was a good choice, a good appointment from Mr. Terrific as far as the morality that, that they might share. And then the other pieces don't have colors, which um, is disappointing to me, I guess. The rooks.
0: Oh, yeah, I get. I guess the rooks don't technically have colors. No, right?
1: and, and also they don't work like I what I would like them to. I mean, there are two things about the rook. First, you can castle them. They look like little castles. You can castle your king with them. But they sort of gave that position to the castellan, which is hmm. not a piece in chess. It is a piece in towers, which is a, a similar board game, but very different where it kind of moves like the Rook in chess, but still not the same. So, like, if they'd been agents that specifically protected the castle, I think that might have been a little more, I don't know, interesting. But instead, what they do represent in the the comic is that direct attack. These are the guys that you're going to send in when all, you know, last resort... They are basically a suicide squad, you know, they, they might not survive this mission. They're attacking in force, very directly. It's not super strategic, it's just a, a powerful force that you're sending in. I, I don't know, I don't know how I felt about this, because in the original Checkmate, the structure was much more uh, top and bottom, you know, it's like the kings and queens ruled over the bishops, the bishops told supervised the rooks, the rooks planned missions for the knights, you know, it was... It was kind of like that trickle down. And here they could, it feels like they couldn't find a spot for the rook. as a a piece or they didn't want these these characters hanging around like an extra four characters that they had to cater to
0: you you know what i questioned was i was kind of like i again i didn't do any research on it at all but i was just kind of like okay you've got what you were talking about in towers like so you you have like the guy post-crisis he was death trap but he's really like the master jailer Mm -hmm. so like they have the former you know villain that's like recruiting the hacker to protect your firewall right like they they have that character that's set up there that has his own brief like couple issue arc you know to i don't know pad out a trade or something like that but then like the rooks i was like okay well gi robot baffled me because by that point i'm just gonna say it like they they pretty much knocked all the americans off the board other than michael holt so i was Mm -hmm. like i don't know like i I was kind of like to me at least a G.I., you know, General Infantry, I'm like, that, that's kind of American, right? Like I, I think they're I all
1: know. because the Cinnamon obviously would be a, a descendant of the original, but Cinnamon's a cowgirl, gravedigger's an American soldier, Sebastian Faust, I don't know. But it's interesting that they went and got like a war character, a Western character, a magic character, uh, and then it's another war character, but also a science fiction character. So I don't know if that was, like, part of it, because it's very strange to have these characters from the past. Rook to uh, D7 and took pawn there. And put you in check. King to F6. I don't know if that, that was, like, a, they were trying to do something with that. You know, like, they'll do, like, different genres as a just, uh, I don't know, each one is its own castle. No idea but it doesn't quite fit the mood of the rest of the hierarchy i don't know
0: it seemed like there were a lot of what's the best way to put it they were mostly legacy i guess characters i don't know like i don't know i, I was trying to figure out some way that that translated into a rook and i couldn't i couldn't come up with anything so
1: rook to f7 takes pawn you're in check just going on the offensive with a rook yeah. that's it's like i planned it around the show <laughs>
0: King to e5 takes knight.
1: Inevitable. Uh, Then, no colors also for the pawns. The pawns are just like the staff characters. You might have pawns all over the world. They're just like your garden variety spies. There's one that. The only one that we really get to know is uh, number 502, which is the guy that, that is indoctrinated into...
0: Oh, Lu- Lucas Terrell. Yes. Is the guy.
1: He becomes part of Cobra. I'd say for pawns, pawns originally are a wall of, of characters. They're nondescript. They have slow movement. They're sacrificial lambs. But they can also be queened, although the only yeah. queening that we see is a knight, uh, actually, in this. But 502 is a frontline agent. He's almost... You could say he's sacrificed. But they send him into Cobra. When he joins Cobra they have to turn him into a Cobra follower. Like, he has to believe in Cobra, but also be uh, loyal to Checkmate. I-, I like this because it's kind of the diagonal step.
0: I feel like this is a precursor... This is going to sound weird, but, mm-hmm. like, I-, I feel like that's a precursor to, like, some of the complex machinations that they put into place in Young Justice in terms of making... There- there's an arc where they make Arrowette or something. I don't know. Anyway, they ma- they make her tigress in the society and they they have to make it look like she killed uh, i think aqualad or something like that and and so there's all this very complex magic machinations and the the way rucka wrote lucas's insertion into the kali yuga cobra cult like that that made me think like oh hey this is just as much uh plans within plans you know you have that i guess tv trope they call the The Xanatos Gambit, you know, which is basically, you know, from Gargoyles. But what it means, I guess, if anybody doesn't know, is like the villains lose something, but you don't realize that that was not their goal the whole time. Their actual goal was this other Piece, right? So, so you know, it's like saying, "Oh, well, you know, you give up this bishop or this knight or whatever." But my goal was to, you know, I don't know, put your king in check or some such, right. you know, like that kind
1: of pawn to c four. So we might want to like finish our game because we're re- we're reaching the end of the show already. But uh, any last thoughts on this latest Checkmate reread? I enjoyed
0: rereading it. I thought I thought it was a lot of fun. I think the book's intelligently written. I did want to just toss in because I know you said you hadn't read it, but yeah. what might be a nice cherry on top to cap off this run, if anybody isn't aware of it, is there were uh, an endless amount of Miniseries and one shots that came out when final crisis was released. There's a rucka written final crisis one shot called final crisis resist and it heavily features uh, Michael Holt, you know, kind of in the throes of the anti life. He's there with the thinker uh, Sasha Bordeaux decides to shut herself down as to not be, I guess, conscripted by the anti life. And, and so it, it kind of, I don't know if it wraps things up, but, you know, I, I did want to point it out also because, uh, you know, much to the chagrin of Rob Kelly, everyone's favorite, well, my favorite anyway, uh, Snapper Carr is there, right? Like, and, and he's actually a pawn of Checkmate, and they're making use of his teleportation powers in the middle of this, you know, global you know, anti-life crisis or whatever. Mm. So I, I thought that was kind of fun because I was like, I knew I had in the back of my head, I was like, I was like, wasn't Snapper Carr a, a, a member of Checkmate? And, and when I reread all this, I was like, he never came up. And I was like, did I imagine that? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's in this special. So right. if, if people are interested, they should probably check that out as well. And
1: I know before the show, I said I didn't, I hadn't read it and I haven't for this, but I did read all the Final Crisis stuff back then. I guess I just didn't get the context for it. But I did read resist.
0: (laughs) Queen to H1. uh, Your king is in check.
1: And my king goes to A2. Queen to F1. Take queen with the rook. This is just a massacre, folks. Now, while we're doing this, I might say that when I stopped playing chess, uh, at some point uh, I was working for a student union at a university here, and uh, they wanted to organize a chess Tournament, So I helped them out with that, which was part of my duties, and uh, and I did go and play a couple games at that point, but my entire strategy was what I call chaos, which was to make random moves that would, like, the, the people who fancy themselves chess masters, not masters, because you need to qualify for the word master, but who felt they were potential winners.
0: Uh, pawn to H4.
1: For those players... They thought strategically. You're always trying to figure out what the other person is doing, uh, like you're trying to queen your, your, your pawn here. Rook to uh, e1. And what would happen is that my chaos strategy was nonsense. It wouldn't win me a game, but it would prolong the game because it, it couldn't be figured out. <laughs> That's a thing you might try in early moves. I don't know how much success you might have with that.
0: Bishop to E4.
1: All right, a big strong wall of bishops in front of the king. Let's pick them off. Rook takes bishop at uh, E3.
0: King to F4. Just just while people are waiting. The other thing I think that happens with Sasha is, like, she shuts herself down or whatever to, so as not to be infected by the anti-life. So I think they, they have her, in, like, in a coma for a really long time. And then I think I think at some point in the JSA... They, him and Dr. Midnight get to revitalize her or something like that and then I guess they share like a happy ending kiss and then I, I don't think much happens with her until she's I don't know, new 52'd or rebirthed or
1: whatever so uh, you know Rook to H3 <laughs> Rook to H8 Pawn to C5 King to G4 Rook to H1 Bishop to H1 takes Rook Pawn to c6. Pawn to h3. Pawn to c7. Pawn to (laughs) h2. (laughs) Bishop to d7. King to f5. Oh, I've got a choice. Pawn becomes queen. Uh, Rook takes queen. And bishop takes rook. (laughs) Bishop to b7. Uh, Then bishop takes bishop. And I'm, I'm not sure we can achieve checkmate with the pieces that we have left.
0: Pawn to oh no! H1. Now we might. i myself. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so let's see what happens, I guess.
1: Uh, well, bishop takes queen. So now we've got two pawns each and a king. I believe we can call this a draw. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, good game. Not, not good game. I mean, we were... <laughs> Distracted, doing something else, you know. But still, it was a lark to play a game with you. Why don't you tell the folks what uh, where they can find you and what else you're working on?
0: Uh, if anybody wants to find me on the interwebs, uh, if you like podcasts, you can listen to podcasts over on fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. If you like videos about the chronological. History of comic books to film. Uh, you can go to the hocof.blogspot.com and check out the videos there.
1: There you go. And on that note, we have to mention that the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page. If you like our content, please think about making a one-time or monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards like suggesting programming like this one. So again, our thanks to John Ross Haynes for suggesting it. A reminder that you can leave us comments at fire and You can also follow the Fire and Water Facebook page. Uh, follow us on Spotify or on Twitter. The account is FW Podcast. That's it for us. Thanks again, Derek, for doing like, these three episodes in one, in a way.
0: Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for having me.
1: I'd let you watch. I would invite you, but the queens we use would not excite you. So you better go back to your bars, your temples, your massage parlors. One night and back up in the world, stop by The bars are temples, but they're posing.